0: it is actually an incredible honor to follow that story. Uh, There is a talk that I do called, If I Had Been Jesus' Leadership Consultant. And I talk about the four coaching areas I would have sat him down on and probably fired him over. And one of them is that language matters and that if you want to start a movement, you talk about things that are big. You talk about tsunamis and seismic shifts. You don't talk about salt and light and seed and yeast. And then I always think, I hope people understand my spiritual gift of sarcasm, that um, Jesus wasn't just telling us that to say, uh, obey me in this. He was saying it to say, I am the creator of the universe. Let me tell you the operating system I created it to operate on. It is that there is a disproportionate impact of small things and listening to the sea story, which is 20 minutes from where I grew up. uh, It is amazing to watch them do that for 20 plus years in a community like Pomona. I'm gonna talk, of course, about generosity this morning, but I wanna talk about the generous life. I love that phrase that Steve used yesterday because gratitude is a spiritual practice, but generosity is what is generated out of that spiritual practice. Generosity is a power similar to nuclear power that when we unleash it in the world, it does things that are exponential in their essence. And every time we go on a generosity journey, you and I are testing the heart of God because the source of all generosity is God. The Bible opens before God has asked human beings to do anything with Him or for Him, that He has prepared a beautiful, generous place for them to be. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am going ahead to prepare a place for you. The generosity of God is staggering, and it is what helps us not only practice generosity, but use our journey of generosity as a way to convince us and connect us to the goodness of God. I'm probably the only one in the room who on my spiritual journey wonders sometimes if God is really good. My spiritual gift of sarcasm continues to grow. There is a quote by Dallas Willard, and I don't understand most of what that man writes. I will often have to ask my husband to interpret it for me, but there is two or three sentences on page 223 of the divine conspiracy on the upper right-hand side that the very first time I read it, I said, I understand it. So I wrote it in my Bible, so I'm gonna read it to you, but I need you to know it's not in the Bible when I read it from the Bible, but listen to this. The acid test for any theology is this, is the God presented one that can be loved, heart, soul, mind, and strength? If the thoughtful, honest answer is not really, then we need to look elsewhere or go deeper. It does not really matter how sophisticated, intellectually, or doctrinally our approach is if it fails to set a lovable, God, a radiant, happy, friendly, accessible, and totally competent being before ordinary people, we have gone wrong. We should not keep going in the same direction, but turn around and take another road. Generosity is a window into the soul of God. And when you begin to view generosity like that, it becomes a self-perpetuating force in your life, not a spiritual discipline. So I'm going to talk about two areas in our lives, our family lives and our work and vocation and business life, as places where we can live out this generous life with our money, but also with our spirit and our leadership, so that generosity becomes not just something we do with our money, but something we embrace with our entire lives because we know God. Years ago, when our kids were little, John and I decided to run a little experiment with them to help them understand generosity from a very young age. And so we went to the bank, and I think our kids at the time were about 10, 8, and 6. And we came home and brought them all together and handed each of them a $100 bill. I can guarantee you they had never seen one of those before. I think it was only John's and my second time ever having seen one. And their eyes got big, and they got so excited, and then we said, oh, 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 wait a minute, sorry, one more thing. This is not for you. Now we had their attention. We want you to think about somebody in your 10-year-old, 8-year-old, and 6-year-old life who could use that money. And then, a lot of times, you get to give, and you do get to see the joy of somebody else receiving. But there's also times when the Bible said you shouldn't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, so we're going to do this in secret. Now, my oldest is a girl. She could have been a lawyer had she chosen to, and she began to argue with us about what part of the $100 bill she should get. thought, this is already not going well. But over time, with their little minds and their prayers, we began to help them creatively think of a way to do it. My youngest, my son, who was six, who actually played t-ball with Kirk Cousins, how old do I feel at this conference right now, had a good friend whose house had just burnt down. And he said, Mom, Mark doesn't have any of his toys, they're all gone. That's who I want to give this to. Each of the kids found somebody, we typed up a letter, we figured out a way to get it to these people anonymously. And I have a friend who heard this story. And the next day when I went to work at the church that John and I worked at, underneath my door was an envelope stuffed full of $20 bills that equaled $300 and a note inside that said, do it again. Because that's what generosity spurs inside of us. So we got to go back to our kids again and with $20 bills, show them we're going to do it again. And no, Laura, you do not get to keep any of this money for yourself. In our families, how do we start with our children, beginning to develop in them a worldview that is strong enough and capable enough to stand against the challenge of coherence and integration that they are going to face by the time they hit high school and college? Generosity is one of the most foundational forces for that journey in the life of a family. Now, one of the things that's dangerous in the life of a family that can stand in the way of generosity is a sin that Jesus pointed out so beautifully in John chapter 21. It's a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. The disciples are discouraged because they've gone back to fishing. They've seen the resurrected Jesus a couple of times, but they don't really get it. And it says that they were out in the boat and there was a man on the shore bent over coals, fixing bread and fish. And he called out to them and he suggested that they put their nets on the other side of the boat and they caught so many fish. And then Peter, not the brightest one in the bunch, put two and two together. And it says in John chapter 21 that he took his outer garment off and jumped into the water to get to Jesus. And then this is in the book of John. John's the one writing it. I love the next verse he writes the other disciples followed in the boat, the way you should. And then, this one's for free, because sometimes we ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? And we try to model our lives around that, which is great. And I just wanna say, men, if you wanna be like Jesus, you would cook. Not my message, I didn't make it up, I'm just reporting to you what the Word of God says. And it's not just barbecuing because there was bread involved, guys. So, all right, that one's for free, it has nothing to do with, gener- well, actually, it is a generous spirit to partner with your wife in the home so that she too can have a life. All right, this is a different conference. I'm at the wrong conference, let's go back. Um, so then Jesus invites Peter to walk with him along the beach. And what's beautiful about this passage is there is a structure in these verses, uh, a framework, if you will, that mirrors exactly the same kind of framework where Peter denied Jesus three times when asked a question. And Jesus uses that same poetic framework to ask Peter three questions to reinstate him. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And so Peter gets his call on his life directly from Jesus. And then since he's got Peter's attention, Jesus says one more thing. Let me tell you, what's going to happen later on in your life. Somebody is going to grab your hand and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And one more time, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. And rather than accepting Jesus' call on his life, Peter committed the act or the sin of comparison. What about him? That's the first thing Peter said. He turned around and saw the disciple John following and said, what about him? I hear what you're calling me to do in my life. I don't really like all of it, so I'd like to hear the offer on the table from John. And then I'd like to compare them and figure out what the ROI is and decide which one I would like to choose. Now you're laughing, maybe I'm the only one that does this. But I'm constantly looking around at other families and other jobs and children and houses and comparing. And comparison will rob you of the joy of generosity faster than anything else. Jesus' response to Peter was more vitriolic than his response to the woman caught in adultery. What is it to you if I allow him to remain alive until I return? You follow me? What is it to you if I give him the very best, sweetest deal in the history of the universe and I call you to a journey of pain and suffering? What is that to you? Follow me. So teaching your children this kind of worldview of generosity when they're young so that they can withstand some of the issues that will come up when they get older is wonderful. But the sin of comparison, whether it's money or things or children or spouses or whatever will rob you of that. And it is a constant journey of spiritual formation lest you think you get over that one till the day you die are bringing that to Jesus and saying, in order to wrestle free from the sin of comparison, I often have to be happy for somebody else who has the very thing that I wish I had. So let's turn our attention for a few minutes then off of our families and think about our business and our vocation and our leadership role. How do we in those roles decide What kind of cares and commitments and values are going to shape and give substance to our work and our businesses in a way that honors God? What are the values of generosity that we will inherently weave into the fabric of our work? I spent 12 years as a corporate consulting, working with Pat Lencioni. Many of you are familiar with his books, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, Death by Meetings. They're Phyllis. But one of the things he would say about values is values are not values until they inflict pain. That's when you know you have a value. It's when the C's daughter said it was really hard at first, but then my heart got bigger. Hard first, bigger heart second. So how do we infuse values of generosity, of spirit into our business that start with money and then go way beyond it? Because if I can be generous with my money, but not with my time, I haven't really understood the generosity of God. Um, Max Dupree was a leadership mentor of mine for many years and he recently passed away. One of the stories that Max would tell often uh, to CEOs is that he was invited to speak at a gathering of a company that one of his best friends was the CEO of, and he had told Max that his company was committed to the core value of inclusion and diversity. And so in a room much like this, filled full of the employees, Max sat at the front table, but would not let the leader catch his eye when he wanted Max to get up and speak. And so finally the CEO came over and said, Max, we're two minutes behind, you're supposed to get up and start your talk. And Max scanned the room and he said, well, I, I couldn't start yet, we're not all here. The CEO said, actually, Max, this is my company and we are all here. He said, oh, you told me you were committed to reflecting the diversity of the community you operate on and everybody in this room is white. We couldn't possibly be all here yet. And so the CEO got up to introduce Max and said, I've just learned another leadership men- a lesson from this man here that our generosity of spirit of promiscuous and radical inclusion, like Jesus did. Do you remember when Jesus started his ministry that what he did, the place he started wasn't at the center of religious life, but he started on the margins of society and said, you who look over here, you're missing it, this is where the kingdom of God starts. And for that to get reflected in our workplaces is a really powerful tool. Many years ago in a previous life, I was an emergency room nurse. And we had one doctor who every time you came on for your shift, if you saw his name on the board, you knew you were gonna get, have a great eight hours. He was a Christ follower, he didn't talk about it a lot, but I knew that about him. But he had an extraordinary way of making everybody on the team feel connected and important. Now, in an ER, you have a core team, but anytime you're working on a code situation, people are coming in and out from x-ray and radiology and laboratory who you've never met before. And if it weren't for their name tag, you wouldn't know them. And this doctor in particular, instead of simply barking out orders, would use people's names and collectively call us to work together. I remember one night at 8 o'clock, a 24-year-old girl came in. And you remember them when they're young. We worked for her on her for three hours before we knew if we were going to send her downstairs to the morgue or upstairs to the intensive care unit. And as always, this doctor orchestrated this team. He would tell you the reasons why when he had time of why he was doing what he was doing when he was doing it so that there was this learning going on all the time. He would call people by name and say, great job, that x-ray was perfect, thank you, just what we needed. And one time in the middle of the code and we were waiting for blood gases to come back so we would know what to do next. He took a moment and looked every one of us in the eye and he said, we will save this young woman. Yes, sir. At the end of the code, a couple of the nurses took the young woman with her tubes up to the intensive care unit. Housekeeping came in, I stayed back to do the charting back in the days when it was still handwritten and my doctor that I loved working with stayed back for a few moments to coach the intern that he had been working with on all the steps that he had made and why. After about 20 minutes, when that was wrapping up, my doctor said to the intern one more question, did you notice the young man from housekeeping that came in all during the code and at the end of the code? I looked at the intern's face, and there was just a blank stare like, not only did I not notice him, I have absolutely no idea why you're asking me this question. I was done charting, and I thought, yeah, I'm not leaving for anything in the world. I want to hear what's <laughs> going to happen right now. Just move your fingers, move your fingers. <laughs> to that blank stare, my doctor said, his name is Carlos. He was met with another blank stare. And I thought, oh, you poor young intern. He went on for about two minutes and said, "Carlos's wife is named Maria. They have four children. Name them with their ages. They live about three miles from here in Santa Ana in a little apartment. I thought, dogs, he's been to their house. Came up from Mexico a year ago. Sends 30% of his salary back home every week. And then the last thing the doctor said to the intern was, I see on the schedule we're supposed to work together next Tuesday evening. Here's your only assignment. Come ready to tell me something about Carlos that I don't already know. Have a good day. I'm like, yes. (laughs) Best leadership moment of my life. You might be on the housekeeping team, but you do your job so well that I, the doctor, am going to elevate you to a place of honor and recognize that God gifted you to do that. And I'm gonna live out this generous spirit of using my time as a physician to build a team of people where there's this radical inclusion. Guys, the world has yet to see the church living this value out in ways that take their breath away. In the work that I do with transforming the Bay with Christ, we work through three strategic streams, unify, amplify, and multiply. People ask me all the time, what's the hardest part of your job? I don't even have to breathe, it's unify. Everybody has their litmus paper out on doctrinal issues that angels are dancing on the heads of pins about and missing that center of the Venn diagram that says Jesus. This generous spirit of inclusion is exactly what Jesus lived out and exactly why people were scratching their heads. Why does he talk to the poor people? Why is he talking about the Samaritan as the hero of the story? He's talking about the Gentiles. Make him stop. It's the kingdom, and when we live with a generous spirit, it involves our checkbooks and our time and our leadership efforts in our places of education. When Jesus called his disciples together, I'm a big believer in team leadership. In the first two chapters of two of the gospels, in the fourth chapter of the other two, Very early on in His ministry, Jesus knew that in order for a movement to perpetuate, after He was gone, He was going to need a collection of people. And how He put together this team and how He worked with them is such a fundamental lesson to us in our leadership at work. Now, I grew up on some pretty powerful flannel graph at Pioneer Baptist Church in Norwalk, California. Seriously. Great stuff. But the one story I got told that doesn't stand up to what the Bible actually says is that Jesus went away for days and prayed and prayed and prayed and wrote down the names of the 12 and went out and found him. I would challenge you to read them again. It's almost like he walked down the street and said, you, follow me, you, follow me, you. I don't know. I can do this with anybody. Come on. I can do this with anybody. That's the generous spirit of the gospel. Do you understand that every fisherman on Jesus' team was a rabbi school dropout? Every one of them. What was Jesus trying to tell us about radical inclusion when he invited Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector to be on his team? These two men were ideologically, philosophically, and politically fundamentally opposed to each other. And when Jesus drew that Venn diagram out, he said, Great news, boys. I'm at the center. It's the only thing you have in common. It's enough. Fill in whatever social issue we're faced with right now. Simon wanted the overthrow of the Roman government. And I can guarantee you the only reason he said yes to Jesus is he believed that was Jesus' agenda also. Matthew, the tax collector, was considered by Simon to be a complete sellout because as a Jewish man, he chose to work for the very empire that was oppressing his own people. And Jesus said, I want you to on my team. One of my pet peeves in leadership, especially in Christian circles, is when people talk about chemistry. Really? Are we back in junior high school with the jocks and the cheerleaders again? Your call to leadership around chemistry is baby leadership. It's 101. It is not mature gospel-centered leadership. It is working with people that you don't like, that don't like you, that you don't get along with, and you're building them in their character and their competency and their vulnerability. Jesus called James and John, the sons of thunder, to be on his team. Do you know what sons of thunder actually means in the Greek? Anger. They had anger management problems. uh, And a Jewish mother. Who was constantly sticking her nose in where it didn't belong? Most of us would have fired them. And then Peter, really? Made more mistakes than all the rest of the disciples put together. The disciples must have just been going around like, oh, not Peter. No, Peter, don't say that. Oh, Peter, don't do that. Put the sword down. Peter, shut up. And Jesus put Peter on his team and don't even get me started with Judas. There surely could not have been chemistry there. I don't have good answers, but I know the model that Jesus set forth. That every single person matters to God and that generous spirit prompts us to be better and different leaders that truly are set apart. And to be generous with our money. One of the decisions that we've made in our nonprofit, TBC, is to cap our budget. We are probably about less than 18 months out from putting a ceiling on our budget so that we can stimulate a tidal wave of generosity in the Bay Area around unify causes, amplify causes, and multiply causes. So that when people come to me and say, I love what you're doing, I'd like to donate to your nonprofit, I get to say, I don't really need your money. I'm assuming you're tithing and giving globally. Let me show you what I'm coming across locally and what would you like to give towards with your strategic mind and your income that could really make a difference in an area where most people laugh at religion. Generosity allows us to have constraints like you saw in the C family or in Kirk Cousins' story yesterday. The 2x4 or the 2x2 that um, Andy drew out yesterday, I thought seriously about having it tattooed on my arm so I could just keep reminding myself, where am I on this? I'm a little disturbed with Steve's 2x2 because it's got Jesus descending from hamburgers to fajitas and back up again. So I don't think that's going to work, Steve. But all of these are helping us understand, how do we plug into this generous spirit of God? One of my favorite passages about the generosity of God, and I'm sure most of you are familiar with it, is in First Chronicles, where David has called all of the people to come together with a generous spirit to contribute to the temple. And in this call to generosity, at this particular time in Israel's history, they knew God well enough. He knew God to be, at his very heart, a good God and a generous God. That they brought so much that David had to say, stop. The world hasn't seen that church either. And then overwhelmed as their leader, David says, who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. As for all this abundance that has come in, we will build you a temple. It comes from your hand and it all belongs to you. I want to close with this. There is a movie from the 1970s, so some of you will be old enough like me to remember it, and I'm going to guess, in a Christian setting, you may never have heard this movie referenced to at the end of a talk, but it was with Charlton Heston and Edward G. Robinson. and It was called Soylent Green. Yeah, you've seen it. It's a schlocky science fiction movie, and at the end, an overpopulated world, you realize that the little pellets they give out to keep people alive are actually made from dead people yeah it's awesome but there's an amazing scene close to the end of the movie the world has deteriorated where it is absolutely devoid of beauty and nature and creativity and people are living in hovels and everything is gray and black it is so bleak and edward g robinson as an old man has taken charlton heston in as a younger man to live with him and they try to find enough food to stay alive But the government has come up with a solution to the overpopulation problem, and they allow people over a certain age to come in and to be euthanized voluntarily so that their space can be given up for other people. But there is a special bonus attached, and Edward G. Robinson is lying on a stretcher with an IV delivering the medicine into his veins, and he's in a surround sound room with videos in 360. And there are pictures of the world the way it used to be with oceans crashing and mountains covered in snow and deer grazing in green valleys and spring wildflowers populating and it's magnificent. And Edward G. Robinson has tears in his eyes and his head just keeps turning and he can't take his eyes off of it and he has a smile on his face as he remembers the world the way it was. And in the meantime, while that's happening, Charlton Haston figures out the choice that Edward G. Robinson has made, and he is running to the hospital. And he runs into the room to convince him to stop, and after a minute, his eyes go up, and he sees a world that he's never seen before. And he cannot speak. And then he begins to slowly shake his head from side to side and say over and over again, I had no idea, I had no idea. That is our response. When we look at what Dallas Willard said that the acid test for any theology is, is God so good that we understand his nature and what's at the center of him, we are staggered and overwhelmed and say, I had no idea. Let's pray. Father, on this journey of generosity, let us never think it's about us. Let us never think it's about our generosity, but rather it is a response to your very nature and character. The generosity is who you are. It's how you created the world and how the blessings that have come towards us have found their source. So may we, with overflowing buckets, receive the abundance that you have given us and start with our heads turning from side to side to see who is this meant for? And who can we give so that we too can show the great and staggering generosity of God, never more visible than in your son Jesus? And it is in his name that we pray, amen.